Good morning to you all. We're continuing the series that we started last week. Ryan set us up so well on this uh, series that we're doing, working through the book of Philippians, a beautiful love letter to people that Paul cared dearly about. Um, and, and it's called The Colony of Christ. And the passage that I am going to speak to this morning is in chapter one, uh, verses 19 to 27. And we'll read it in a moment or two. I just want to kind of frame it again and kind of recap a little bit of what Ryan brought last week. Philippi was a Roman colony. All were Roman citizens. 50% would have been slaves. It was a very diverse culture and community. This city would have been on the road that Caesar traveled on and that gave the actual city honor because they were on the road that Caesar would have traveled on if he was going through the kingdom, as it were. And so they had, cult they had a cultural honor just by being Philippi. And Paul is speaking to this group of Jesus followers, and he loves them dearly. He speaks with such affection and such warmth, and it's, it's a beautiful book, I think, even on that alone. The church would have been made up mainly of Gentiles. They had earthly citizenship, to Rome, but the call on their lives was to become citizens of heaven, citizens of the king, and that is what Paul keeps emphasizing throughout the book. They were a generous community. They supported Paul whilst he was in prison, and that's why when he was in prison, he wrote to them to thank them, particularly for the financial gift. As Ryan talked about last week, when you're in prison back then, you didn't have everything provided for you, and so you relied on the goodness of people. I love that phrase, he says, I thank God every time I think of you. And I've tried to remember that phrase when I write to people because I think it's so beautiful. I thank God every time I think of you. So there's a warmth and an affection in Paul. And Ryan highlighted for us the themes of the letter, holiness and unity, both and. You don't have one without the other. And that is what we are called as Jesus followers to contend for. And in this time in Redeemer Central, we are called to seek holiness and unity. And that is not without challenge. That is not without challenge, but that is a call on our lives. We are to rediscover our holiness and become fully human. Love and wisdom go also together and we are called to live as one mind and one spirit. The other great theme of the, the letter is joy. And it's joy not based on circumstances. It is joy that is coming from a deep contentment, knowing who you are in Christ and knowing of your calling, both in this life and in the hereafter. Paul is writing from prison. He's been awaiting trial and the outcome, he doesn't know it yet. He's been four years in prison. It's about 61 AD and he's in Ephesus. He's been four years in jail and his case is coming up and he doesn't know whether it's going to be life or death. So when he speaks in this letter about the choices of life or death, he's not ha having some kind of sit back, chew the cud, philosophical debate. He is in the reality that I do not know what is ahead of me. I may be put to death. So what he's telling us is, is very important. He's considering the possibilities ahead and he's wondering what's it going to be and what if either would he choose. How to live life through the lens of the reality of death. Nothing else would focus the mind. 
on what actually matters than the reality of death just being ahead. And that is where Paul is in this passage. Uh, 34 years ago, I moved to the Royal in Belfast and I started to train as a nurse. I lived in those towers. Do you know those towers at the top of the Grosvenor Road? And so it was the 80s. Those were dark days. Those were dark, dark days in Belfast. And um, I was thinking about it this week and I was... Uh, I remembered once walking back, there was a British Army lookout on the middle tower, and I remember one evening coming back off a night, one morning coming off a night shift, and I was exhausted, obviously, and they were disposing a bomb outside the tower, and my thought was, I hope they hurry up, because I really need to sleep. That is not a normal, healthy response to seeing a bomb being diffused, but that was my response. Those were dark days that we lived through, and I believe that we actually still carry the trauma of those in our bodies <laughs> and in our memories. But what I remember, so I worked as a general nurse, and then I moved to London, and I became a children's nurse. And in a period of about 10 years, when I was very young, I learned more about how to live well by sitting with the dying. I spent hours and hours holding the hands of those who were dying, and talking to them about their lives. And those lessons that I learnt were priceless to me. And I have tried, I feel all the time, but I try to live in the outworking of those. Because when you're sitting with someone who is facing death, I've sat with children who were dying. And that is something that is almost impossible to make sense of. I've sat with the elderly and I've sat with those who were having a premature death. And what they want to talk about is what gave their lives meaning. It was never their stuff or who they were or their job or their position or their finance. It was who did I love and who loved me. It was places I went, things I saw. And it was also, I wonder what comes next. I wonder what comes next. And I... Every, every time I get caught into thinking about what's important to me in my life, I try and remember those lessons. What at the end of my life will I look back and realize gave me meaning? And it's, it tended to be those themes. And I took every opportunity I had when people were dying to talk to them about what came next and to believe the name of Jesus and something very simple to simply say the name of Jesus. And I look back on those days and I, I am so thankful for them. And I invite us all now as we live, not knowing when our deaths are going to be, but we can choose life in its fullness. We can choose life for the King. We can choose life that will give meaning so that when our time comes, as it inevitably will come, we can look back and be thankful for the choices we've made. You only taste a sweet God when you're sitting in the bitterness of life. And here is Paul facing two possible outcomes, and these are his thoughts. Suffering focuses us to sit face to face with Jesus. So let's read the passage now as the church would have heard it. I'm going to read two versions of it because I think there's beauty in both. So the first is from my much-loved New King James. That shows my age. I'm going to read it first and then I'm going, it's going to come up on the screen behind me and it's going to be um, the N.T. Wright version that you would have heard last week. 
This is Paul speaking. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So there's, there's some of that translation that I want to speak to and then I would like us to read. It'll come up behind me and it's from N.T. Wright's version. Yes, and I am really going to celebrate because I know that this will result in my rescue. Through your prayer and the support of the Spirit of King Jesus, I am waiting eagerly and full of hope because nothing is going to put me to shame. I am going to be bold and outspoken now and always and the king is going to gain a great reputation through my body, whether in life or in death. You see, for me to live as a Messiah, to die means a prophet. If it's to be living in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. Actually, I don't know now which I would choose. I'm pulled both ways at once. I would really love to leave all this and be with the king because that would be far better. But staying on here in the flesh is more vital for your sake. Since I've become convinced of this, I know I will remain here and stay alongside you to help you advance and rejoice in your faith so that the pride you take in King Jesus may overflow because of me when I come to visit again. The other thing I want to kind of highlight as an overview of the book, we see Paul in a very vulnerable way. He lives in a vulnerable manner. He speaks with warmth and affection. He talks about his friend Epaphroditus who is ill and was close to death. And he saw that God saved him and it was a mercy to him. He showed that he needed Epaphroditus. He sought help and he's asking for prayer. He sees grief and he sees it as sorrow after sorrow. He doesn't speak of death as just being this wonderful thing we should all celebrate. He talks about sorrow after sorrow. And I think there's something for us as the followers of Jesus to live an authentic and vulnerable and open life, to work our way through difficult things, to name them and own them, and do the labor that is required to walk out the other side. This is what Paul models for us in the whole of the book, his vulnerable work that he owns, all that's going on for him, and these are raw and intimate reflections of life and death and all of the possibilities therein. I think Paul is modeling what we talk about when we say emotionally healthy spirituality. I think he is showing us how to live a real and honest life in relationship and with one another. What I want to do now is just go through verse by verse because there's several things I want to pull out of each part. And then at the end, I want to just offer some thoughts of what this might actually mean to us in this time and today. 
18 and 19, which is here. Yes, and I'm really going to celebrate because I know that this will result in my rescue through your prayer and the support of the King Jesus. Here Paul is reminding us, and this is a a lovely thing for us to be reminded of, Redeemer, that your prayers and the work of the Spirit go together. It is not necessarily one and the other. For some unbelievable reason, the sovereign Lord, who could do it all in an instant, invites us, his people, to join him. And it is your prayers and the work of the Spirit. So we are invited into what God is doing in the world by your prayers. On Friday night, we celebrated. This place looked amazing for the wedding celebration of Dave and Beth. And over the last four months, as you all know, Dave has had desperate challenges in his health. And we as a community have prayed and wept and beseeched God. And through those prayers and the work of the Spirit of God, Friday happened when possibly the human part of my head thought it might not. His health was restored. God invites us to partner with him in what he is doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Do not miss the opportunity to go with it and be part of it. This is how he works. And in verse 19, the Greek word, which should come up behind me, is soteria, salvation. It will result in my rescue. And this is the Greek word that the translation comes from. It is a past, present, and a future meaning. But it is also a direct quote from Job, chapter 13, verse 16. So when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, he's going back to the Old Testament and he's quoting what happened to Job. I am hopefully, yes, I can find it. So what's happening to Job? The whole passage, it's worth reading the whole passage. The scholars would tell us that if there's uh, a reminder of something that came from the Old Testament, we look at the whole passage. So what was happening for Job? He was destitute, he'd lost everything. His so-called friends had come to him and more or less told him, you've kind of got what you deserved. We now talk about Job's comforters and we probably all have some of those in our lives. Uh, And what Job is saying, Job battles on through and waits and he says, even so, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. I have prepared my face, my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. And so Paul is taking us back to that poem, that passage from Job. And Paul had had a similar experience in just before the passage that we're reading, where people had come And they'd said they were preaching out of envy and strife. They were preaching from selfish ambitions. So Paul was experiencing similar things, so-called friends that were not necessarily being helpful. And he was saying, God will use this for my deliverance. Even if he kills me, yet I will trust him. So whatever you are going through at this moment in your life, Whatever you are facing, your salvation is past, present, and future. 
It is all being worked out. Your job is to simply hang on and keep praying and keep trusting. In verse 20, they talk, he talks about hope. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. And hope in our culture is not certain. I, we say we're hoping this will happen because we don't know. That is our, our understanding of the word hope. But the Greek word hope was a certainty. We just don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. So when you read a passage of scripture that has the word hope in it, do not read it through the lens of it might happen, we'll hope for it. Read it as it is certain. It is going to happen. We just don't know when. And yesterday at Thrive, Angie came and shared with us. And when she was 16, God spoke to her and told her, I will heal you. He didn't tell her when, but he told her, I will heal you. She had to wait five years. Five years. But it came. God is always true to his word. God is faithful to his word. And if he has spoken something over your life that is a promise and a hope, it will come to pass. There's no debate on that. We just need to wait and the timing is his. He also talks about Cultural context, Mark. Oh, yes. Okay. Stay with me. (laughs) He's talking about shame. I am waiting eagerly and I'm full of hope because nothing is going to put me to shame. And in this culture, honor and shame were two very big definers. Everyone was obsessed with getting honor. So Paul is saying, I am not going to be put to shame. God is going to see me through. He is going to deliver me and have his way. And in a culture, that was a much more powerful word than perhaps it is here. Having said that, shame still is a huge, in my opinion, strategy of the enemy to bring people down. He, it is a toxic work of the enemy in your mind that you carry shame. And sometimes people carry shame because of what they've done. Sometimes people carry shame because what has been done to them. And in him, there is no shame. In him, there is no shame. And when I talk with people who say, I'm not good enough or I'm not this enough, I remind them that they're focusing on themselves. You need to turn the lens to him. You need to turn the lens to the one who is able and the one who saved you and has covered all of your sin and all that has happened to you and all the shame that you carry. God is going to be glorified through my life or in my death. And and Paul is reminding the people in Philippi, look for the glory that comes from being the child of the king. Look for the glory that comes from being a follower of Jesus. That is all that you want to gain. Here is the great, um, and then we move to verse 21. Verse 21, which is probably for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I have behind me the Greek, and it is Zen Christos, Apothenean Kerdos. Zen Christos, Apothenean Kerdos. And the scholars highlight that there's no verb in this in the Greek, that there's alliteration. And when there was alliteration in a, a letter, it meant pay attention, pay attention. So listen to the rhythm. Not pad it out with lots of verbs, just listen to it. 
to live Christ, to die gain. That is what Paul is facing and that is what he is contending and believing in. To live Christ, to die gain. Gerald Hawthorne said this beautiful quote, life is filled up and occupied with Christ in the sense that everything Paul does, trusts, loves, obeys, preaches and so on is inspired by Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning and purpose to existence. All of my days are under the call of the king and he and he alone is the motivation for my existence. You've heard me say it before, but if you were to think of your life as a story, if you were to think of your life as perhaps one word, if you asked your friends to describe your life in one word, would the word they use be a Jesus follower? Would it be Christ? I say that to my own heart. I say that to my own heart. Because that is the call to live Christ. To live Christ. To die again. And I often think the Greek word in this also is about enlarging, that Christ will be enlarged in my life. And so if we were to think, Redeemer, of how we live day to day, if Christ was enlarged in your life, what would your life look like tomorrow? What will be different in your life tomorrow? What would you give your time and attention to tomorrow? If Christ was actually enlarged and people looked at you and thought, Stephanie Wilson, Jesus follower. Stephanie Wilson, living Christ. I find that quite humbling. I find that quite a humbling thought. If I was to ask the people I work with, if I was to ask my clients, if I was to ask my colleagues, my children, my husband, anyone in my life, what word would they describe me as? Would it be Jesus follower? And if it is not, how can I work and do the fruitful work so that I am known as one who follows the king. That leads me into fruitful work. The use of the word, the word labor here. And I, I personally really like this. But if I live on in the flesh, <clears throat> this will mean fruit for my labor. Fruit from my labor. New life never comes without labor. Ask any woman who's ever given birth. There is something in the process of gaining fruit of gaining new life that is hard work, that requires grit and determination and dogged determination. You will never see, if, you, if you're a gardener, you have to prune back to get growth. You have to prune hard to get growth. Things don't just happen. And I think we have been sold a little bit of a lie in terms of how we understand the Christian faith in that I think we want to believe that everything is instant, everything is going to be sorted, I'm going to be healed, restored, and it's all going to happen right now. I don't actually believe that. I jokingly talked about the slow cookers last week and the microwave. I firmly believe that. That for us to bear fruit for the king, there is labor. There is labor. And if you're laboring this morning on an area of your life or, or in a relationship or over finance or whatever it is, I encourage you to keep laboring, keep believing and keep trusting because you will see the fruit. Because after the winter, the, the spring always comes. Nature reminds us that a hard, cold, long winter is always followed by new life and spring. 
Verse 23 is one of the few places in the Bible where Paul actually speaks of the afterlife. And he talks about being with the Lord. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And then he goes on. So Paul speaks of death and what it means for a Jesus follower and death is not the end of the story. So when he says death is gain, it's because he knows it's not the end of the story. And the important thing about studying the scripture is that you look at all of the letters in cohesion, if you like. So if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, Colossians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, which I've already said. They all speak of a temporary state of rest and union with Christ. So there's life, there is the moment of death, and then there is the waiting. But the waiting is in the presence of God. We don't know what it will look like. We don't know what it will be, but it is in the presence of God, which is far better. And then at a later point, we are resurrected and there is a new heaven and a new earth, all the, the, the revelation stuff. So heaven is very r- rarely spoken about, but in the Bible, and I think we have kind of added lots of ideas to it. But if we look at the teachings of Paul through all of those letters that I've spoken to, that is what we can know. There is life, there is death. We are then in a period of waiting in the presence of the king which will be far better. And then there is resurrection and the new body and the new earth. Paul in his letter, letters layers up the teaching and it's important to read all of them and to read all that is said on life after death. And then we end with verses 25 to 26. He's convinced when he weighs it all up that it's going to be better, that he has more work to do and he's going to get out of jail and he will stay alongside you. So he looks and he he prayerfully considers and he is confident that it is not death, it is not his time, that God has more for him to do and that he is going to partner with the people in Philippi. He is talking about joy and he's going to take joy in them and through them and it's that deep in the bones contentment. It's not joy that's just because life's good at at this very moment. It is joy that comes from the deep contentment of knowing Jesus. And he's saying to them, I am going to partner with you and look forward to his return. Living for the king and living for him alone. What I want us to think about this morning, just briefly as I kind of, I've talked you through the verses and I've pulled out what I think is relevant for us. But there's several things that I want to perhaps invite you to think about in light of this verse, these verses. The word that he uses when he's talking about leaving the world is depart. Now some would say that was him as a tent maker and he was talking about going to another place. There's another visual imagery that is conjured up with the Greek word that is depart and it's pulling up the anchor. Pulling up the anchor and setting sail. It's a psychological idea that you just say, I'm done, and I'm going to drift off into whatever comes next. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about those of us in the room, and perhaps we're in a period of our lives where we think, I wouldn't mind pulling up the anchor. I wouldn't mind leaving it all behind me. It's actually quite hard. 
And Paul, if we think of him when he wrote this, this was a lived experience for him. He'd been beaten, he'd been in jail, he'd been shipwrecked, he had been abused. And it would make perfect sense to me that he'd thought, actually, to die would be gain. I am exhausted and I'm broken and I'm done. And years of psychological research tell us that the most significant thing that you can do for someone when they are in trouble is to remind them that they are not alone. You are not alone. And I love that Paul writes this letter and reminds us that there can be periods in our lives where we think, I'm ready to depart, I'm done. And yet he remains and he chooses life. And he chooses to continue to love and serve the king. And for those this morning who are here and you're weary and you're fighting battles that perhaps none of us know about. My encouragement to you is that you are not alone. Seek community. Seek connection. Seek support. And most of all, sit at the face of the Father. And know that you will never, ever be alone. The other idea that I want us to think about is our fruitful labor. Labor requires blood, sweat, and tears. To live a godly and a holy life takes years of discipline, grit, and determination. Getting out of bed to read your Bible, choosing to stay silent, choosing not to fill your life with noise, choosing to listen to the still, small voice of the king, That takes grit and determination. That means not pressing the snooze button every time it goes off, but getting up and starting the day and being thankful and living a grateful life. And so whatever you're laboring at this morning, whether it's your marriage, your family, your city, your soul, know that fruit will come, but it does require labor and it will require you to commit to it and that your rescue will come through your prayers and through the work of the Spirit of the Lord. And the other part I just want to kind of offer you this morning is in his last verses, where he talks about, I will remain here for your progress. I will live for the King and the King alone. I will live for the King and I will live for the others who are in my life. If you were to pause now, Redeemer, and you'll have a different area of influence, you all have different people in your lives. Who is in your life this morning and this week that you can pour yourself into, that you can partner with and bring them joy, that you can invite them further into the love of the Father? You can be Jesus and bring the presence of God to them. Because Paul is saying, I am going to stay and the reason I'm staying is because I have work to do with you and together we will rejoice. So perhaps think of who is in your life that you can bring, you can be a joy giver to, not a light, daft, silly joy that doesn't actually mean anything, a deep in the bones contentment joy. So that is where I'd like us to end. I, I would like us to come now to the table and I would love us to sing that outsider song, if that's okay. Yes, it is okay. <laughs> As we stand and as we come back to where it all begins and the band is going to allow us to sing that beautiful song. I sensed as we sang that song earlier and I've never heard it before and I love it. 
that there are people in this room and you consider yourself an outsider. You consider yourself on the edge and you're not, you're not. And the reason you're not is because of this, because of him. And so if you are obsessing with the fact that you're an outsider, it's because you're keeping your lens on yourself. It's because you're looking at your own mess. It's because you're looking at what you've come through. Take your eyes off that and look at the king. He is the one that invites you in. He is the one who shed his blood for you and says, because of you, there's an open door. There is an open door and you're invited to live Christ. And in time, when the time comes, die will begin. It will be far better. So let's stand. As we begin to to sing and to come forward and to celebrate the fact that we are no longer on the outside. Think about your week. Think about who you can be a joy giver to. Who you can give more joy to and work alongside to partner with in the gospel. To bring the life of the king to this city and to this nation. Because this nation and this city and this street needs Jesus. And if we don't partner with what the work of the Spirit is doing, stuff will not happen on this street, in this city, and in this nation. So Redeemer, our call is to live Christ, to live Christ, knowing that to die will be gain. But for now, we are to live Christ. We are to live Him. Breathe Him in. Make Him your first thought at the beginning of the morning and your last thought when you go to sleep at night. Live Christ Christ.